Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. Anaphylaxis is a medical term derived from two Greek words, Anna, which means against, and phylaxis, which translates to guarding. It's one of those words that sends shivers down the spines of parents, grandparents, and caregivers everywhere, and with good reason. It can be life-threatening. Joining me to define anaphylaxis and give us an update on what's happening in the research world to prevent it and treat it is Dr. Timothy Dribben. He's an associate professor in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Dribben is one of the world's leading researchers on anaphylaxis in children. He presented primary data on the subject at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting in Washington, D.C. this year, where we spoke with him. So what is anaphylaxis? Here's Dr. Timothy Dribben. That's a great question, and there's a lot of debate about what anaphylaxis is still. I work with international anaphylaxis experts, and there's a new impetus to try to come up with uh, consensus diagnostic criteria based on the input of people from all over the world. What I would say is anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction. So it has the potential to cause significant harm to patients and potentially to cause fatalities. However, fatal reactions are exceedingly, exceedingly rare. But what we typically think of anaphylaxis is it's an allergic reaction that can involve multiple parts of the body. So typically, you know, a simple allergic reaction, someone may eat a peanut or they may take a medicine and have a reaction. They may have, you know, a rash here or there. The difference usually with anaphylaxis is it doesn't just involve one thing, such as the skin. It would be having the skin involvement plus another part of the body, such as vomiting or uh, diarrhea, abdominal pain, or trouble breathing or wheezing. And the most severe part of anaphylaxis is there's a small subset of patients, it's more common in adults, but they can actually um, develop low blood pressure and what we in medicine refer to as shock, where basically they're not able to uh, get blood to their vital organ systems. And that's the most severe form of anaphylaxis that if not intervened quickly, patients can die from and do, do die here in the U.S. and globally. I'm not a medical professional. I'm a parent. Yes. I'm a grandparent. How do I know when I need to bring my child to my pediatrician or to the hospital to look and see if this might be anaphylaxis? I think it's really challenging, and this is one of the things that our group is trying to actually improve, is how can we aid uh, patients, their families, other caregivers, whether it's a child care worker, a school teacher, who may encounter these reactions, because we know there are more and more kids that have food allergies in schools. And one of the things we hear very commonly in the emergency department is, I still struggle to recognize when this is a severe allergic reaction. And more specifically, when do I need to give that epinephrine auto-injector? Because that's what we try to reinforce, 
that epinephrine is the therapy that has to always be given, and if given in a prompt, timely way, can prevent bad outcomes. So I think the thing we always tell families is, you know, if you're not a medical expert, right, if you're not a healthcare provider, we don't want you to put so much pressure on yourself. If you're concerned, you know, we always say, go to the emergency department or call 911. And we say for those families that they're unsure about when to give an epinephrine auto injector, if you're concerned and you think your child could potentially be sick and you have one at hand, give it, and then we'll help you manage it from there. Because I think it's a still a very, very challenging thing to try to figure out when to give those medicines. And I bring up the topic of anaphylaxis specifically because this is what you are presenting on here at PAS, optimizing anaphylaxis observation periods based on reaction severity. Talk about your results, if you would. Yeah, so one of the biggest dilemmas in anaphylaxis is that once patients receive epinephrine, for the most part, most patients have their symptoms go away and they do just fine. That occurs in probably 90% of patients. There's another subset of patients, though, that even after you give an epinephrine auto-injector, their symptoms can persist. And then there's another weird phenomenon where there's a group of patients where their symptoms can actually go away, and then after a period of time, they come back, and we call that a biphasic reaction. In the literature, there's very uh, little guidelines about after you give an epinephrine auto-injector, how long do you need to watch patients? We don't really know. Previous guidelines had said, hey, we need to have all children who receive an auto-injector be observed for at least four to six hours. But the, when they published these guidelines, they said there's really no data supporting this. This study is the first study to look at a large population of children with anaphylaxis to figure out how long do we need to watch these children once they receive an epinephrine auto-injector. And what we think is really novel is we said, look, not all anaphylaxis is the same. There are mild reactions that go away quickly, and then there are more severe reactions. So we need to determine observation periods based on the reaction and how severe it is. So we said, we thought that kids who have less severe reactions probably need to be observed for a shorter period of time in the emergency department versus those ones with more severe symptoms that may, you know, pretend a worse outcome. They should be observed for a longer period of time. And that's what our findings really reinforced. Based on how we did this study, though, we did chart reviews to look to try to answer this question. So the best way we could try to figure out how long we need to watch patients is we actually use at the timing of when patients received epinephrine to inform how long we need to watch them. And what we found was that for kids with the more mild reactions, they could be observed for less than two hours. And then for patients with more severe reactions, they probably need to be observed a little longer. And we also found that some pretty striking findings that for patients who only had skin findings or abdominal symptoms, that they could be observed for almost like five minutes or less, so almost no time at all, which really kind of begs the question is that we hypothesize that there's probably some kids that, you know, their parent gives them an epinephrine auto-injector at home and they do well. Do they even need to come to the emergency department? Because current recommendations are that if you give an EpiPen, everyone has to come to the emergency department. And the reason for that is just to, to make sure that kids don't get sicker and they don't have a, a bad outcome. But in the future, we think there's potential to say, hey, how can we limit emergency department utilization? Given those visits are stressful for families, they're incredibly expensive, and not to mention our emergency departments are very busy and we don't want families sitting in our lobbies when they could be at home and uh, have good outcomes. So that's kind of the summary of our findings. That's the 20,000-foot view of your findings. What do you do with that information moving forward? It sounds like if this is replicated several more times, you might be changing the recommendation. This may be long-term down the road. 
that people don't have to come and bring their children after they get the EpiPen? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think, you know, one thing is as a researcher, it always takes time before research findings are implemented into care to actually change care. And it, it, it takes a lot to do that. So I work with a lot of allergy colleagues in the U.S. and globally. And I think studies like this, when it is published, because again, I have to say these are preliminary findings that we have not yet published in a peer-reviewed journal, but hopefully these findings would help with changes and modification to practice parameters that are set forth by different bodies, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Asthma and Allergy Foundations. But that will take some time, I think. But I think this is an important first step to try to say, look, that there's potential that we could reduce observation periods. Additionally, given that this, this study we categorize as a retrospective study, we try to we usually say the best evidence is for those studies where you're collecting data in real time. So when patients come in, and our group is currently conducting a study that is prospective to try to figure out how long do patients have their symptoms for based on how sick they are. So we think that data will be probably even more robust and stronger to complement the studies that we're presenting here at the, the meet. Sounds like you're doing a lot of research. In researching you, I found out that you had a study, you were the lead author on a study that was published in the journal in the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology that looked to identify knowledge gaps around anaphylaxis. What were the findings of that particular article? Yeah, that article, we convened a panel of 25 experts in the U.S., and then there were three international panelists as well. I think the big message is that anaphylaxis is really understudied. You know, that there's a paucity of data and research to try to figure out how can we best manage patients. One of the first things is that there's need to improve the terminology about how we communicate around anaphylaxis. So what our group did was we also published another complementary study to standardize how we define these different outcomes. So what is a biphasic reaction and what does it mean to have a persistent reaction? And that's a really important step for researchers so that we can try to harmonize our outcomes so that when we, when we conduct research going forward, that it, different investigators and research teams use the same term. So that's very, very, very helpful. We also published another study where it's used to assess the severity of reactions because a severe reaction for me may, may be very different than a severe reaction for a clinician in Canada or in England. So we want to standardize how we define severity, and that will also help us better understand outcomes and potentially if we develop new therapies to standardize that as well. One of the big things, though, that I think is missing with anaphylaxis is anaphylaxis is a clinical diagnosis. So it means we have to examine patients, we have to listen to what symptoms they're having to figure out, do we think this is anaphylaxis? However, there's still a lot of disagreement among clinicians about what it means to have anaphylaxis. So I think one of the biggest things from more of a basic science or translational science aspect is there's still need to understand what is really happening from a mechanistic standpoint. You know, there's no blood test that we can draw to say, you have anaphylaxis or you don't. And there's definitely not something that we can test rapidly to inform our decisions. So I think that will be one of the biggest challenges going forward is, is there a way to identify what we call a biomarker, either in the blood or urine, or combinations of biomarkers that we can use to confirm when someone's really having anaphylaxis, and also to inform other stuff, such as how long we need to watch them or potentially to develop new therapies to target some of those biomarkers. 
So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that realm. The challenge, though, of studying anaphylaxis is that it's really hard. The emergency department's a great place to study it, but it's really hard when kids come in with anaphylaxis, they're scared, their parents are scared. How do we enroll them in a research study, right? How do we get them to say, hey, yeah, we'll provide blood samples and all that? So it's really, really hard to study, and our group is one of the uh, groups that's trying to make strides to develop the infrastructure that we can study this in real time to advance our understanding of these outcomes. And that, of course, goes to the issue of informed consent, and parents are, as you said, in a stressful situation. Can you get them to sign that piece of paper to enroll them in a study? These are difficult questions, but you're working on them. We're working on it, and you know what? I'm, I, I think one of the... the things that I love studying about anaphylaxis is that patients and their families, and whether it's the primary caregivers or grandparents, they're so invested in this research. Because for a lot of people, these are lifelong things that they struggle with. You know, a child with a peanut allergy, you know, they're probably not going to outgrow that. So that's a fear for that family, for that patient the rest of their life. When their kid goes to college, it's not something that they're going to outgrow. So we've been humbled by the commitment of patients and families to participate in this research more than we have in some other studies. And for our studies, we've found a, a high number of families that want to participate in this research and are really committed to it. So I think that's very encouraging for, uh, for our, our team and other investigators going forward. Are you still practicing clinically? I do practice clinically. I do. I have about one shift a week in the emergency department at Cincinnati Children's. And I think that's really important to still practice clinically because it makes sure that I still know what's going on. You know, as a clinician, I love it. But also from a scientific standpoint, I always want to make sure the questions I have as an investigator are meeting the needs of patients and families. And the only way you can do that is sit at the bedside of a patient before they go home or in the moment to, to ask them those questions. What is this like for you? What are we missing? What are we not doing? What would be a tool we could develop that you would use when you go home? And I think that's key to deriving science is to make sure that patients and families are involved in the research process from the beginning and are really driving what we do to make sure that our outcomes are patient and family centric. In terms of your clinical work, is there a patient story, a family story, of course, respecting privacy that sticks with you, that informs your work, that inspires you as you move forward? I think it's a combination of patients and families. I think the thing that always amazes me is just to see the fear and the the concern in a patient and, their, and the parents when they come in and see us. You know, when they come in and they're really sick, they have to go to our resuscitation room and they're surrounded by, you know, 10, 15 people and we're potentially giving their child an epinephrine auto-injector. And that's a really stressful time for that parent. And you can see it in their eyes. And I think the thing is that that fear, even when their child gets better and we're able to send them home or they're doing better, that, that anxiety does not leave them. And I think it changes them for the, you know, the rest of their lives where you know, they go to a restaurant and they're worried that there could be cross-contamination, right? They could go to their friend's house and they could get exposed to this. So it's a pervasive concern. And that's the thing that drives me is to say, look, we need to try to figure out solutions that can reduce that anxiety, that can reduce that stress. And hopefully my colleagues, who I always say are much smarter than me, the basic scientists, can really try to figure out how can we cure allergies, you know, especially food allergies. Right now, there's no cure for this. There's novel therapies, but there's no cure to make it go away. And I think that's hopefully um, the amazing collaborators that I work with. They can try to address those, those problems to ultimately, you know, reduce that so the patients, their, their parents don't have to, to have to have that anxiety day in and day in. Let me uh, change the topic just ever so slightly. I know Nemours is, is 
in every healthcare institution that I've ever spoken to these days is all about health equity. As you do your research, as you do your clinical work, how do you bring health equity principles into all that you do? It's a great question, and I've been very impressed that when we recruit patients for our other studies, that we have incredible diversity with our, the patients and families that we see. So that's number one. I think the thing that I think in terms of a health equity point related to anaphylaxis and specifically food allergies for kids is access, right? When people leave our emergency departments, are they able to access the care they need? So the care they need is, are they able to see an allergist in a timely manner? Are they able to get transportation to go see those allergists? If they have barriers, the parents are working or something like that, how can we make sure that they get to see the allergists and that they, they receive the therapies they do? I think there's very little data. We don't know how good we are in ensuring that access to care once children are seen in the emergency department. We're the first-line service, but we don't know if, if people are, are seeing an allergist, and that's critical. The other thing, with if you think about access, is our patients picking up prescriptions for epinephrine auto-injectors. One of the great things that our hospital has done, we have a new critical care building in a new emergency department. We have a 24-hour pharmacy in our emergency department. So we, I know that when I send someone home, they're going to have an epinephrine auto-injector at home. It's very different, you know, if you send someone away at, you know, at midnight and you don't know if that parent is able to afford or even pick up that prescription for that epinephrine auto-injector. And if that child were to have a reaction, what would happen? Now, hopefully they would be able to call 911, but I think that'd be a disparity in care if they don't, aren't able to access that auto-injector and potentially have a bad outcome. So for me, I think access is one of the biggest things with health equity, and we are looking at that as well. So we're able to follow patients when we enroll them in the emergency department. We're able to see are they following up with allergists. And then we also like to do some you know, in-depth interviews with patients and, and their caregivers to try to figure out how we can de deliver equitable care. Sounds like you're thinking about the big questions when it comes to health equity, which is much appreciated. That's great. Anything else that you'd like to talk about on the podcast that I haven't asked you about? No, it's just an honor to be here. And I think it's really important that um, as researchers, you know, we always have our typical ways of conveying information, which is usually, you know, academic meetings like this or publications. But I always worry that patients' families are not reading those publications, right? It's not getting out there. So I think technology and podcasts like this are critical to making sure that people are hearing the most recent evidence and hopefully that they uh, see that we're trying to address these burdensome conditions to move science forward and to improve patient outcomes and care delivery in the U.S. and uh, abroad. Well beyond medicine. Thanks for listening to our conversation on anaphylaxis and the research being done to prevent and treat it with me, Carol Vassar, and our guest, Dr. Timothy Dribben from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Parents, grandparents, caregivers, what are your worries and concerns about allergic reactions like anaphylaxis? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at nemourswellbeyond.org. That's nemourswellbeyond.org. While you're there, check out our other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. Thanks to Jay Parker, Cheryl Mon, and Susan Masucci for production assistance this week. Join us next time as we preview Nemours Brand 2.0. Until then, remember, together we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go!